0: Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On August 26, 2022, we talked with Dr. Mark Johnson, Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Missouri School of Medicine, and Mitchell Ramuda, a graduate student in the O'Connor Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about their work on wastewater and air surveillance for SARS-CoV-2 and other pathogens. Thanks for joining us today. Um, we have Mark and Mitchell with us. Um, why don't you, let's start with Mark. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I am a virologist that, um, I've been a virologist for most of my life now. I started it in grad school and never, never, never looked at, looked away. Um, so I've been an independent investigator for about 15 years now. But most of my career, I've been working on HIV, um, all different aspects of viral replication, very basic science. How does the virus put itself together, Um, that kind of thing. But I've worked with a lot of different viruses along the way because we study different glycoproteins and mix and match things. But at the beginning of um, 2020, as the labs were all shutting, I was approached by the um, Missouri Department of Health to ask if I could help stand up a research or a COVID surveillance project looking at wastewater and to be honest i had no interest in doing it i i tried really hard to to give the job to someone else but no one else wanted it but then once i read about the protocols i'm like oh this is this is exactly like what we're already doing i mean isolating viruses from you know volumes of liquid and then measuring the rna or whatever so I'm like okay we'll give it a try and at the time it was a it was a little it was it was small at the time it was just um, less than 10 sewer sheds a week, which wasn't that time consuming, but it just, it was successful. And then it just kept growing and growing and growing. And now it's basically taken over my lab. So now we are a wastewater surveillance lab, apparently. But you know, I never expected my particular background to be a, I, I had just the right skills. <laughs> and I never thought these combination of skills would be useful for anything other than basic research. But You know, being familiar with deep sequencing and also being very familiar with viral biology and just isolate nucleic acids under various conditions turned out to be the the key, some of the key components to this sort of project.
0: Great, cool. And we'll uh, get like dive into some of the details about the wastewater surveillance. Um, Mitch, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah. Um, my name's Mitchell Ramuda. I'm a PhD candidate in David O'Connor's laboratory at the AIDS vaccine research laboratory um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison going on to my fourth year of grad school. Um, and since joining Dave's lab, I've had the opportunity to work on you know a wide range of projects focusing on surveillance and the pathogenesis of emerging viruses, Um, and so this is mostly focused on Zika virus and SARS-CoV-2. Kind of thinking back of how I became interested in science and and virology um, as a grad student, you know, I think this goes back to um, undergraduate, and so as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I was first introduced to zoonotic disease research during uh introduction to animal science course. Um, and this was by Professor Mark Cook. I ended up joining Mark's lab my sophomore year to study um, the development of alternatives to antibiotics to treat parasitic infections um, that have a large impact on, on the poultry industry. And then in 2015, I saw kind of the the devastating impacts that the H2N5 avian influenza epidemic had on the United States. And this really enhanced my interest in pursuing a career in conducting research that, you know, was uh, focused on helping prevent control and then eliminate disease outbreaks. Um, and at that time, I had a really broad interest in infectious diseases, and I wanted to narrow it down. Um, so during my senior year, I took several courses on pathogenic bacteriology, um, parasitology and virology. Um, and I just absolutely loved my virology course taught by, uh, Andrew Maley. And after that, I knew that I wanted to pursue, um, graduate education in virology, but I needed to gain, you know, further experiences with viruses before applying to graduate programs. Um, So I applied to a post-baccalaureate fellowship at the NIH um, and accepted a position in Jeffrey Taubenberger's lab to evaluate the the immunogenicity and protective efficacy of a a broadly protective influenza vaccine candidate in preclinical ferret and murine models. and working in Jeff's lab with uh Jagan Park on that study was just an amazing experience and and really solidified my desire to pursue graduate training in, in virology specifically, uh, focusing on studying emerging viruses that that have pandemic potential. And so I applied to different graduate programs and and decided to come back to the University of, of Wisconsin-Madison um because of, because of its just wide breadth of of virology research on campus. And and that led me to then join Dave's lab.
0: Cool. And um, Mark, so tell us about, I guess, wastewater surveillance in general. Before the pandemic, what was it used for? And now what are you using it for?
1: For the most part, it it wasn't. Um, The one place where it had been applied some is with uh, polio, which we're now hearing more about. But in general, it it wasn't a thing. Um, it was a group, I think, in the Netherlands that first sort of um, showed that it could be done. And this is, you know, we're, here we are reading it in Missouri when and where COVID hadn't even arrived yet, and they're like, "Hey, we we could we could get ahead of this." And that happened in pretty much every state at different points along the way. That they're like, "Oh, we can do this."
0: Right, but wasn't there? I guess people have d- done sort of. The virome um, of built environments, the viral wastewater um, looking basically virus discovery. Isn't this kind mm-hmm. of what this is based on in a way? Maybe not the public health aspect of it, but more sort of the looking for novel pathogens. People have been looking at wastewater for many many years, right?
1: Yes, that that's true. And looking at the viromes, looking at what viruses are out there. It, it, this is just the first time it would really been used for surveillance. But I, got, you know, even now, it's just it's. I was astounded at how much we don't know in terms of what is coming at what's what of the, of the virome in that, that's in there. Most of it is viruses that are unknown. We don't know anything about them, but there's a lot of them there. Right. It's, it's quite fascinating. It's just it's just mind boggling. Right.
0: Right. So tell us what 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 can you surveil, I guess, effectively in wastewater? And then we'll talk to Mitch about sort of why you might want to look at air in addition or instead.
1: So there is a difference in efficiency between the two. Um, but the bigger thing is just um, which is the easier sample to get. If you are surveilling uh, a can- a, some place where people live, where they um, necessarily use the toilets, Usually wastewater is superior because you can get a really good, you know, comprehensive readout. Um, And so but so and of course, sorry, I don't want to take mentions, but, you know, if, if people aren't necessarily using the, you know, airport schools, churches, concerts, you name it, then wastewater is only going to give you this minute sampling, which will not really. I mean, it might give you a heads up, but it's not really representative uh, but in terms of what we can surveil, um, we can we can see enteric viruses, the ones that, that grow in the gut in spades. I mean, that's just fall off a log easy. Um, and then we can also detect other things. So we, we can detect influenza, although in our experience, that's quite a bit harder than um, detecting enteric viruses. Because there you're relying on, um, it's probably, if it's like nasal, this is something that's swallowed and it's got... You know, our digestive tract is is designed to not let those things live through. So um, the recovery is going to be much lower for the respiratory viruses. Um, surprisingly, I think skin viruses are, you know, like monkeypox. Everyone's asking the question of, is it shed in feces and urine? And I'm like, wow, who cares? It's still going to end up in the wastewater because people take showers and it's a skin disease. So, you know, the skin's going to slough off and go down the drain and you'll, you'll detect it. Um, the ones that I'm not as sure about that we'll be able to detect is the bloodborne pathogens like HIV or ones that um, typically those don't end up being shed in feces that I know of.
0: So things like um, uh, arboviruses, maybe not.
1: Arbovirus, maybe not. HIV, maybe not. Um, I'm, I'm interested in that. But although those can be surveilled a different way because you can, even though uh, once they infect humans, we can't detect them, but we can we could detect them from the mosquitoes. You know, you can do sampling of wetlands and whatnot. You know?
0: And some um, of them, I, I know, like, for example, in our mouse models of West Nile, it's actually shed in the urine, surprisingly. So there's, oh, really? there's certain viruses that you wouldn't think you'd be able to detect, but you might actually be able to.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing those are there because they actually infect the kidney or somewhere in the renal, I would guess. I doubt it's actually, you know. We're, the, we're pretty good at filtering, you know, what ends up in urine. So unless they're actually in- infecting the apparatus that's doing that, hard to yeah. imagine how it gets there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes for a lot of the viruses, we have preconceived notions as to where they go and what they actually are infecting, but there's there's other things that they actually infect the GI tract.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I keep being amused when people are asking about monkeypox and urine and feces doesn't matter it's going to be shed
0: yeah and is so are people actually starting to see signatures for monkeypox in the wastewater surveillance that you guys are doing
1: uh yes they are um we are not because we're currently not looking. um okay so the help we have to get buy-in from the health department and the health department has to get buy-in from the wastewater treatment facilities when we started this you know no one knew wastewater surveillance and They weren't sure what we were doing. So we pretty much had to sign in blood. We are only going to be looking for SARS-CoV-2. And so if we start modifying that, we need to go back to our stakeholders and make sure that they're okay with it. So we haven't actually done a lot of monkeypox surveillance yet. We're we're, we're getting geared up for it. We're ready. But um, we haven't actually done a lot of screening. But others have.
0: So Mitch, why why would we want to surveil air? So Mark talked a little bit about some of the reasons from your research. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think one of the appealing things about air surveillance and also wastewater is that it can work around these limitations of individual testing. So, um air samples collect a, a mixture of particles that are released from many different individuals that when they're either talking, you know, breathing, sneezing or or, or coughing when they're infected. And so it has the ability to pick up both uh, individuals who are symptomatic at the time or asymptomatic. And I think, as Mark mentioned, that air samplers uh, are very easy to move around within a building or a community. And so if you have a certain event going on um, and you want to sample it or you have different areas of interest of, of congregate settings, because risk can, you know, vary a, a ton throughout a community. It allows you to really set up and um, kind of receive uh, or collect surveillance data with, with ultra high spatial resolution. And, and so I think that makes it a really appealing um, surveillance strategy to use. Um, and I think it's best used in conjunction with, with other surveillance strategies such as wastewater or continuing to do individual testing. But as we've seen over the past months and, and weeks, kind of the public's sentiment towards the pandemic has has really shifted. And um there's a you know a lot of closures of individual testing sites and and also people's behavior of willing to willingness to go get tested. And so this kind of is uh allows us to bypass some of those, um, those limitations. So I think that makes it a really appealing um, strategy. And then also the ability to detect different pathogens within the same sample, because you're, you know, you're, you're not biasing, you know, what viruses you're specifically trying to capture it's just capturing a lot of um, aerosol particles.
0: And I guess. Um, what about sort of the sensitivity level of air versus water? Are you able to do um, next generation sequencing, sort of like on an unknown sample, or do you have, you know, do you have to rely on um, uh, qRT-PCR for amplification? Um, what works best? So for wastewater, um, is that is that something that you can do um, with just direct sort of PCR?
1: So we've actually collaborated. So we did some deep sequencing on a bunch of their samples. And yeah, you can. So our our method for, for characterizing viruses are different than most. We don't try and get the whole genome. We try and sequence the, um, the bits that are most informative. So we're kind of trading off breadth for depth so we can get really good amplification of them. And yeah, like with SARS-CoV-2 from we were monitoring a, a bar in Minnesota and we we could track the appearance of when it moved from Delta to BA one, and then I can't remember what was after that. But what what we were what we were getting from the air samples exactly matched what was happening clinically. It was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and I was actually struck by how the fact that um, you were able to pick up sort of a, a different subset of viruses, Mitch, um, depending on the setting. So you had sort of like different types of viruses that were circulating in your, um, preschool population than compared to say the, uh, college sit- sit- setting or the bar setting. Were you surprised by that or was that sort of expected?
2: Yeah, I think I, I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of our study. Um, because as, as I mentioned before, you know, risk for different pathogens varies, uh, tremendously across the community. And so, As expected, you know, from a preschool that has, you know, mostly young children in it versus, you know, a high school or a bar, I would expect to see different viruses or or pathogens in those areas. But I think that really um, was interesting to us was kind of comparing what we were detecting in air samples for SARS-CoV-2, which, you know, was a virus that had a lot of community transmission at the time versus influenza A virus, where we were seeing it localized on campus testing sites. And this was kind of matching up with what we were seeing from local and the national public health agencies on um, influenza activity on college campuses in the Midwest and specifically University of Wisconsin at the time. And so I thought that That was very powerful to see in our air samples um and yeah as as you're asking before i think air samples collect um kind of how how we test them and what we're relying on um air samples collect uh, very low amounts of viral or viral genetic material. And so right now we heavily rely on, uh, PCR testing of the samples, but as, as Mark alluded to, um, we tried using our uh, obtaining whole genome sequences for SARS-CoV-2 on these low CT samples that had high, higher viral loads. And we were able to get, you know, near full genome sequences, but, you know, that's just a very select few number of samples. And so being able to collaborate with Mark and, and use their targeted uh, spike sequencing approach was really helpful in expanding, you know, how many samples or or kind of what that threshold is of, of being able to get more um, information to characterize the SARS-CoV-2 variants that we we're collecting in these air samples. So we're looking forward to over this next past year trying to expand that um, strategy out to different respiratory viruses, such as influenza or RSV and and so on.
1: I got to tell you something that was really cool though, is, you know, that's what we were thinking like influenza um, SARS-CoV-2. Okay. Caveat, this is preliminary data, so don't overinterpret it, but um, we also did some shotgun sequencing from the respiratory samples or from the air samples. And, you know, proper caution here but you know we saw a lot of viruses consistently to, that were not really what we were expecting until we thought about it because what we started picking up is a whole bunch of skin viruses molluscus contagiosum merkel ones that and we're like oh yeah because what happens when you have a skin lash you scratch it it's 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 a different way of aerosolizing but it's you know a whole nother you know type of viruses that obviously can be detected this way
0: hmm I guess that sort of brings me to the question, were there viruses um, that um, either you didn't expect or are there even like, almost like you were alerting to unknown viruses that are previously not associated viruses that are circulating in the community, sort of in the respiratory space?
1: I think the most common virus we pulled out was a wheat virus, which might have something to do with the fact that we were sampling at a brewery.
0: Okay <laughs> that makes sense
2: <laughs> yeah and and I would add that, yeah, we we are also trying to expand metagenomic sequencing in our lab on on these air samples over this this next year and, and continue to see what what we're picking up in these air samples, uh, in terms of, Something that surprised me in our study that we detected, I think human bocavirus really surprised me in preschools, and I didn't know much about human bocavirus, and until until I saw it popping up at the preschool, I said, "Okay, I got to got to figure this out." And so I think that was really interesting to see, and and that the detection of human bocavirus was really localized at you know these preschool or, or daycare settings where it's prominent in in that demographic so
0: yeah yeah so i guess um leads me to the question so what when you do surveillance what do you actually see this data being used for. So I personally have been following Mark on Twitter and I just love, you know I I like to know what's coming to Missouri. So it's you know my local area. I find that information sort of helpful for me to kind of think about what's going on. But ideally sort of where do you see this going? Like how can you use this information not just on an individual level, but how can we actually use it to um, for public health or for mitigation? How do you see it going?
1: Oh, I mean, all kinds of I mean, basically, basically all we're doing is giving a rapid, unbiased readout of what is happening at a bird's eye level, what new pathogens are moving into a community. And um, sometimes you can do things about it when you know, I mean, if you know that um, monkeypox is really concentrated in this one community, then you can aggressively try and do vaccination in that particular community. Um Like when with some of these new SARS CoV 2 lineages, we know, like when Delta was moving in, we knew when Delta arrived in a sewer shed that they were going to see a spike in patients within two to three weeks, and we could tell them that and they could do what they can to prepare because it was pretty much a done deal at that point. Um, and it doesn't, (laughs) I'll say, it doesn't have to be limited to viruses either, we can measure just about anything from wastewater. So we can measure opioids, for instance, see what opioids and how much are in sewer sheds, which could be a useful measure. Like if you're trying to use a new intervention strategy to have that unbiased readout, to see whether you're having success, whether the opioid uh, shedding is changing or not. Um, Right. There's all kinds of ways it can be applied.
0: So do you think that you can actually use this information to pair with mitigation strategies for viruses as well, Though, so in a particular setting, or are you too high level to actually do that? Could you, for example, say you you were looking at a school or something like that, and they, you were surveilling wastewater or maybe air from a school, and you could say, you know, I see cases starting to go or amounts starting to go up, you know. You need to pour on your opening your windows, your you know whatever your are um, masking, your you know what put put your mitigation strategies, uh, get the HVAC going, you know what have you, and then let's see if we can get the signal to go back down. Is it is it able to do? Is it granular enough to do that
1: or? It can be. Uh, I mean, I, I I still believe with schools that the air sampling is going to be a better uh, intervention. But yes, absolutely, because especially now. All right, we're well, just using SARS-CoV-2 as an example. Not that many people are getting getting tested, but there's still a lot of people that are getting infected. And that can be a problem for high schools because, you know, they're in close contact and you can get half the school infected in a short period of time. But if we see it early on, we can let them know that something has started before it gets to be, you know, acute, at least in theory. Um, and yeah, there, you know, how, you know, every time you have an intervention measure, it, it, it's, it has associated costs in terms of people's times or something. If, if, if there were no costs, we would be doing everything all the time. So knowing when to turn it up and not. Um, and another thing, this is a just a small thing, but actually in the beginning, one of the places where I felt we were most useful is with, um, prisons. We were doing all the prisons for all, all of, all of the facilities in Missouri. And so, first of all, unfortunately, um, inmates don't necessarily Come are not necessarily forthcoming when they're sick, um, because if wh- why want to isolate? It's like punishment when you haven't done anything wrong. But if you can tell them that there is a problem, they can actually truly implement procedures that will knock it down. And they, they had great success with that. But even in addition to that, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, all of the human testing they were doing was rather expensive. You know, having to send people in to do this human testing on all of these um, people that didn't necessarily really want to be tested um, was really expensive. But then once we had the sewer shed um, in line, we could tell them where testing needed to be done. I mean, if when they were, I don't know exactly how it worked, but I have a feeling that the places that were just negative by um, sewer shed testing, they probably just, you know, spent their their human testing money elsewhere. It was where it was more needed. Right, Right. It allows you to apply the, you know, there, there are finite Public health, there's only so much money that goes to public health. So being able to focus it where it's needed most is, I think, where this kind of surveillance really can be useful.
0: Right. Right. And Mitch, what do you think? What can air do?
2: Yeah. So as Mark was also just just talking um, about, I think that air surveillance could play a big role in, in kind of large public health, uh, awareness of knowing where you're detecting certain pathogens within a community could allow public health to kind of focus on, um, putting resources towards those regions, whether it's increasing testing or looking at surveillance testing and and focusing messaging towards those different congregate settings or areas within a community would be extremely helpful. And knowing just what is circulating in your community and whether that's um, what type of pathogens or what variants of concern for SARS-CoV-2 are around, especially when individual testing is decreasing and or kind of non-existent for, for, or limited for other pathogens, um, on a smaller scale of making decisions, I think that we're still trying to figure out the best way of implementing changes, um, based off of what you're seeing on air sampling data, Uh, just because testing by PCR, um, it's hard to, you know, it's impossible to tell if we're detecting infectious virus or if it's just uh viral genetic material that is captured that doesn't pose a risk um but at the same time we've been working with public health agencies to develop framework of saying okay we have been detecting this pathogen for this time period um what are the steps that we're going to take in this congregate setting so it could look like we're detecting this um and but at this time, no one's wearing masks. Should we implement, or should we release a statement to kind of um, have individuals start masking uh, if masking is occurring, and you're still seeing this increase of detection, and but you're not detecting it on an individual testing basis. Maybe you increase testing in that area too to try to pick up on cases. To isolate individuals when they're the most infectious to prevent that onward tr- transmission, um, and then lastly, you could also use it to kind of gauge how um, how beneficial your risk or efficient your risk mitigation strategies are. So you could increase ventilation in a in an enclosed space um, to limit how many uh, aerosols are or, are in the area too. So I think that's all in the works and it's a complicated process of trying to make those decisions at a small a small scale but it's something that we're hoping to be able to do with this data as as we continue to learn more about it on our end.
0: Right. And then how do you deal with sort of the public's perception of privacy and this being too invasive and they don't really want to know and this kind of a thing. What do you say to that?
2: Yeah. So I think one of the major important things of our study of implementing air sampling at these different congregate settings was that we had really good relationships with these um, congregate settings before we started air sampling because we were implementing other um, surveillance testing strategies at these places when individual testing was very limited in the community, um, and so I think that played a really big key in our messaging and having trust from people. I think in terms of privacy, one of the major benefits of of air sampling is that you know it collects a, a mixture of of aerosol or particles from many individuals. And so it's depersonalized and, and that, um, you know, we can't, track if we have a positive sample, we can't track it down to one single person or so people's privacy, you know, is, is maintained throughout this process. Um, and so I think that's a kind of our big uh, experiences with privacy and, and, kind of messaging towards this.
0: Yeah, Mark, what do you say for wastewater? Are there concerns about, so that that you can actually track to an individual toilet kind of thing, I guess, eventually. Um, are there larger concerns about privacy um, sort of out in the public with wastewater surveillance? How do you think about that?
1: Well, there was great concern about that, particularly in the beginning. And, and specifically, there was a lot of concern about even an unbiased sense of of stigmatizing cities or neighborhoods and it is a legitimate concern that that, that we, we we thought about and so in the end we we were very slow in in how how granular the information was and how broadly we made it public but to be honest in two years we've been at this we've never gotten any pushback at all in terms of privacy. And in, in fact, it was the other way around. We kept getting pressured by the public and by the press to, to release more and more granular information. It surprisingly it, you know, it, it has not been an issue so far. Now there's no question that the smaller this the the sewer shed gets, the more you're you're getting into, you know, different territory that will need to be considered. Um there's both the legal aspect and the sort of you know moral aspect right Um, from a legal point of view it you've got to get pretty fine-tuned before you're actually breaking the law so i I remember looking up what the laws are actually in terms of um, whether you can pull things out of people's waste and it's it's not as protected as you might think about what people can pull out of your trash can legally. I mean, w- at what point is it no longer your private information? So if, not so much from a legal point, from an ethical point, from a moral standpoint of like, when are you invading someone's privacy? It's um, it, it It needs to be a conversation going forward.
0: Right, right.
1: But so far we have not experienced pushback. The only times we've tracked anything down has been purely for um something that did concern us, that um, it was a public health, what we thought should be on the public self, in the public health's best interests of knowing where it was coming from.
0: Right. All right. Well, as we're finishing up, I have two more questions. One for Mark. I'm really curious about these cryptic lineages that you see and this whole story of how you're able to kind of <clears throat> look for what might be the originator of these lineages. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: All right, so um, cryptic lineages means a lineage that we detect from wastewater that is not not consistent with anything that's been seen in patients. And when I say not not consistent, I don't mean like one extra mutation. I mean like a bunch. We we there were there have been a handful of sewer sheds. The first one was actually in St. Louis, where we started picking out these lineages that just what the hell is this? And and it's not like it was a sequencing error because we were seeing it week after week. And we weren't seeing it anywhere. We were only seeing it from one sewer shed and I was about ready to crawl out of my skin. I was just going mad with these things. So um, we've gone through several iterations of what we think these were. So initially um, we didn't know. Um, And then based on some of the mutations, a lot of the mutations we've seen often are consistent with rodent adapted mutations. then I thought, oh, sure, it's the rodents. That's gotta be it, It's, it's in the rats, but then we started getting a lot of rat feces sent to us from the sewer sheds. and We could never find any sign of virus. Uh, we actually even worked with USDA and got a bunch of blood from rats in, in some of the sewer sheds. And they didn't have any neutralizing antibodies. Huh. And so, And then we started doing ribosomal RNA testing to see which sewer sheds actually have rats that are contributing. And some of them do. Don't get me wrong, but not all of them. Some of them that had well, some of the most robust cryptic lineages had no rats to speak of in their sewer shed. And were, I mean, you think about other animals, cats and dogs are about the only other thing that were c- candidates, and even those, nothing matched up. And so it was with, with a, a, a sewer shed in Wisconsin that we actually, they had a ver- they had a sewer shed that we traced it all the way down to a single toilet. So at that point, I'm like, there's no white-tailed deer using that toilet. This is coming from <laughs> Person. And then once I had accepted the fact that it was coming from a person, there was only one thing left, which was that I couldn't understand how if it was coming from a single person, how we could detect it in an entire sewer shed. I mean, we're talking about sewer sheds, some that have 100 million gallons a day. It's I'm like, there's just no way we could detect a single person. But then, <laughs> we, we as we got closer and closer to the source um, in this with, with this Wisconsin lineage, holy crap, we could not believe how much SARS-CoV-2 we were seeing in the sewer shed. Logarithmically higher levels than we had ever seen before. I mean, we're talking, uh, sewer. Sh- we could have diluted it one to a million, and we still would have had no trouble detecting. I'm like, okay, these guys are shedding a lot of virus at least in some cases. So that's kind of closed the loop for me that I I think it's now coming from patients, but I don't know where in the patient. Um, Our running theory at this point is that there are certain long-term COVIDs where the virus um, sets up shop in the GI tract, which probably also helps explain why we see so much because they're they're replicating right there next to the exit. So um, you probably get a high recovery
0: do you imagine that, I mean, they're, it seems like they're probably immunocompromised in some way. So when you think about persistent infection long-term, uh, like with norovirus or something like that, people can like basically be infected for like a year persistently with norovirus, but usually they're immunocompromised in some way, right? We,
1: we think that is probably the case, but they're, they're not your classic immunocompromised patients. So there have been a lot of Cases where they've tracked um, SARS-CoV-2 that has infected immunocompromised patients for a year or two, but by and large, those viruses don't pick up that many mutations. Hmm. And we think the reason is because if they're severely immunocompromised, there isn't a selective pressure. Whereas, and I think what we have is sort of a Goldilocks effect, where there's just enough immunity left that it keeps keep the pressure pressure on the virus to keep changing. And then they just go off the races. So most of the mutations we see are not random. They're almost all clearly escape mutations. They are are running away from an immune system.
0: I see. Wow.
1: So it's like moderate, probably moderately immune suppressed. And it might be a particular kind of immune suppression. It might not, they might not even know that they're immune suppressed. It could be that they have some kind of B cell deficiency or something that just does not allow them to clear the virus from whatever compartment they're replicating in. But it does make us wonder about some of these cases of long COVID where people, I mean, are these, are long COVID, I, you know, most of them are people that are, that have cleared the virus and it's just long-term effects. But is that really the case? Or do these guy do these people continue to have an infection, but we're just not looking in the right place? It really makes you wonder.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then Mitch, I guess my question for air surveillance, you kind of talked a little bit about this in the discussion of your paper is could we use it actually in airports or in a scenario where we're trying to actually um, surveil for emergent or new pathogens? Do you actually see that that's um, a practical application of air surveillance or is it too early for that?
2: So I think it's still a little early, but putting together different um, initiatives, I think, could make it possible um, in the near future. And so I think there's several different um, aspects of being able to run an air sampler, let's say, on an international flight and to be able to then test that air sample within the next few hours um, and then detect what what pathogens were there. and so let's say it's a new emerging respiratory virus. Um, be, being able to then contact individuals and on that flight and go through contact tracing. So one aspect is that air samplers or air samples capture you know very low amounts of genetic material. So to be able to run on-site testing, we need to improve our methods of being able to use point of care uh, extraction and concentration of of those air samples for nucleic acids. And so developing methods that you could bring to a field setting, or let's say you could set up in a a lab in the airport um, would be useful. And then using something like metagenomic sequencing, where you don't have to rely on uh, pathogen specific targets would be very useful in this setting uh, of being able to detect something that that we aren't necessarily expecting in, in every flight. Um, and then let's say coupling that with something like um, Oxford Nanopore sequencing where you could use it right there on site. Um, that turnaround time right now is is a lot longer. But I think eventually in the future it might be something that that is possible.
0: right. I mean, you can imagine for planes that it might work. I mean, because they're if you could somehow build it into almost like the HEPA recirculation recirculating of the air, you've got a lot of air moving through sort of your airplane in general, you could potentially be filtering a lot of air through a filter at the same time.
2: Yeah, that that was kind of my initial thoughts of how you might implement something like this. But also, I don't know much about the layout of an airplane right now, but um, working with different engineers and things like that to figure out how to efficiently grab a sample that collects a ton of air from the 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 cabin would be really beneficial for that
0: right. Great. Right. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for talking to us about sort of surveillance of sars c o v two but also just wastewater and air surveillance of other emerging viruses as well. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Yes, thank you very much.
0: This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Baccarat, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.